There's a lot of changes, a lot of things that do make me very angry. But every time somebody speaks out, male or female, it gives permission for someone else to find their voice. And, and that's what I do. I just really speak out to end the shame, the stigma, the silence, and to help people find their courage and their voice so they can share their own story too. Because I think when we don't speak out, we really hold ourselves back from living our, our best life. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. You are listening to Don't Be Afraid to Talk podcast with James. If you are listening for the first time, you are welcome. Talking and listening is key for growth, and I hope our stories will bring us together and we can draw inspiration from each other. Conversation will include topics such as mental and physical health, trauma and its effect, suicidal thoughts, recovery, and well-being. We will continue to raise awareness and offer a different perspective a mindset or an idea that could inspire you to take charge of your well-being and to grow as a human being. Thank you for joining us today. Today I'm joined by Madeline who is going to share with you her story. If you're listening, have an open mind, and we hope you can learn something from this conversation. Hello, Madeline. How are you? I'm good, James. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm okay now. <laughs> um, do you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a psychotherapist. I am a speaker. I'm a podcast host as well, and I am an author and a sexual violence activist. Super, super. And today we're going to be talking about your story mm-hmm. and I have your book here, Unbroken, which is the conversation we're going to be talking about today, which is sexual violence. So I'm delighted to have you on. I haven't had this conversation before. <laughs> um, before we get going, we're going to play a quick game. It's called One for One. Okay. Uh, I'll give you a word and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. I have five words. So the first one is revelation. Revelation. Um, speaking. Windsurfing. Freedom. Stories. Healing. Motherhood. Heaven. <laughs> and the last one, unspeakable. Speakable. Quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um. So, yeah, that's the, I just like to start with that. Sorry, it helps me calm down. Sorry, can you just tell us a little bit more about what happened to you when you were 13? Sure, I really just had a bad night out. You know, I just did what most people I'm sure have done at some point in their life. I lied to my parents about where I was staying that night. My friend's mum was away, so we had an empty flat and we bought alcohol. It was late 1970s, so it was much easier to get hold of alcohol. They didn't really ask for ID or anything. And we drank a bottle of vodka in a cafe in North London, where I used to live. And obviously, just skinny little 13-year-old girl, never drunk before. I got drunk really quickly and easily. And two of the young men on our table that night took us into a taxi back to 
my friend's mum's flat and the two of them proceeded to rape and torture me over about a four or five hour period. And prior to that happening, how was the night? Like, how did you come across these two boys? Well, my friend um, had an American dad. They were all from the American school and she seemed to know a lot of them and it was a cafe where a lot of them hung out at. And they just kind of sat on our table. I knew one of them. He was a neighbour of a friend of mine at school. I didn't really know the other one. But there was about four or five of them that joined us and also took part in like the drinking of the illegal vodka out from under the table. Mm. And you mentioned in the book that after the night was over, they, they helped to bring it home, to bring it to a taxi and take it to the apartment, was it? Yeah, they took us back to my friend's mum's empty flat. Yeah. Where we were staying, where we weren't meant to be staying there, but we both had lied about where we were staying that night. Yep, so they took us back there. Okay. And then there was um, the incident kind of started in a taxi. It did, yeah. Yeah, and obviously the taxi driver probably thought this is not my business and they never... Yeah, you know, that that night he just decided to be a, a bystander rather than an upstander because he must have seen what was already taking place, but he just chose to ignore it. He he just wanted to get me there really quickly without me throwing up on the back of his taxi, but he let them do whatever they were doing to me already. Mm. And do you remember where your friend was at this time? Uh, she was also in the taxi, and then when we went up into the flat, they put us into different bedrooms. So she was in a room across the hall from me. Okay. And... When did you realise, like, this is not what you thought was happening? Quite early on. It was very clear, you know, they weren't there to let me um, sleep off the alcohol. They weren't there to take me out the clothes. I'd been sick and it was very early on that, you know, they were there for something else. And I tried to fight back, but fighting back just made them more violent. So I just, my body just went limp and just allowed them to do whatever they had to do. And when this was happening, I think you mentioned there was a... There was kind of noise next door, there was something going on, but obviously no one heard heard you screaming. There was, it was, I was in a block of flats and I could hear down in like the communal gardens, I could hear adults and kids having a party, it was like a barbecue and I could even smell the food coming up from the window. But yeah, nobody knew where I was, it was before mobile phones, before GPS trackers or find my friends, so nobody really, not my family either, had any idea where I was staying that mm, night. Mm. And uh, sorry, just I'm trying to find pages from your book here. You mentioned that well, one of them was raping you. The other one just sat there quietly like nothing was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, the two of them took part and took part at the same time or they took, you know, one of them watched and one of them did something. They were just both of them that raped me and tortured me over many hours. Yeah. And while this was happening, this went on for five hours, you say? I believe so, yeah, four or five hours. Yeah, and you mentioned as well that you had an out-of-body experience where you're kind of, you can see what was happening, Mm -hmm. but you're disassociated from the event. Absolutely, and I think in some way that's really what saved me from dying because I know now, I am a psychotherapist or a former psychotherapist, when we are under extreme trauma or stress, we get out of the way, and my body literally my head detached itself from the scene of the crime. I found myself, the only way I can describe it, it's like floating out of my body. And then I became aware I was sitting on top of the wardrobe. So I was sitting, watching what was happening, but I was also that person it was happening too. So it was very surreal, but it's, you know, I've spoken to many people since that people that have 
been in life-death situations and we're very close to being killed, that this is not an uncommon occurrence. Yeah. And uh, so I'm just going to quote a line from your, pe- from your book here. This is on page 12. I don't know if you're going to remember that. Sure. So Randall spiked my face and brought his face close to mine, all the while screaming and swearing at me to shut up. He then punched me in the face, quietly stood and kicked me with his boots hard between my legs. And like while this was happening, the, uh, Jerry, he just kind of yeah. just sat there and was watching what was happening. Well, they were both part of it. I wasn't really aware of what he was doing. I was more concerned of what was being what was doing to my body at that time. Yeah, and you mentioned as well that one of them, they actually wanted to brain you that night as well. Yeah, yeah, they were very violent individuals. Uh, they tried to set fire to my hair unsuccessfully. Um, they had a lighter that wouldn't light, but he tried two or three times, I can remember. It exactly, it was a little silver Zippo lighter, a little rectangular, which he flicked the lid open and, and struck it. It was very... Uh, around at that time. I don't know if people still use them. I'm not a smoker, so I wouldn't know. But yes, I can mm-hmm. remember the, the strike of the noise and the flame by my face. Yeah. And then when all this ordeal finished, uh, you just remember waking up and beside your friend. Your friend was in a bed as well, but nothing had happened to her. Yep, exactly. And how was that going back home? Well, I think when we've been through a trauma, I was very numb. I couldn't really quite name what had happened to me. I was just 13, so I didn't really have the vocabulary. But already I was thinking, you know, I'm going to get into trouble if I tell my parents because uh, we'd bought alcohol and we'd met boys and we stayed in a flat where we weren't meant to be. It was an empty flat with no adults. So we just decided to keep quiet. But, um, you know, what what we don't speak about has got to come out somehow. So it, it started to leak out of me in many ways. I just tried to push it down far, far into my consciousness and diminish it and, you know, make out it wasn't as bad as it was for many years. I just tried to push it away and not look at it. Mm. And after this happened, like, did it, because they threatened you and they kind of, it kind of got around the school as well, what, what they did, but they said their story was that you wanted this to happen. They also told a different story to yeah. what actually happened. Yeah, that they said they took part in a threesome and people started to believe that. And obviously that was not what happened in any way. But yeah, it it was just added to the deep self-loathing state that I was already in. I thought, well, nobody believes me. Even if I do speak out, they'll all think that's what I wanted, which is clearly not what I wanted in any way. Why would anybody ever want that to happen to them? Mm. And uh, this obviously affected your behaviour in the house. I think you say that after this, your behavior just kind of became erratic. Yeah, I would say I was rebelling and I was trying to numb out. So I used drugs, alcohol. I had an eating disorder. I tried to commit suicide. I ended up in a children's psychiatric ward. I had fears, phobias, anxiety. Yeah, my behavior was off the chart. I think I was hoping that maybe, I don't, I don't know if this is what I was doing back then, but looking back, I wanted people to guess that something had happened to okay. me, you know, to dive into my head and take the information out because I was too scared to speak it because they also said if I spoke about it, they would kill me. And I, I you know, after some of the things they had done, I thought, well, one of them was definitely more than capable. So I couldn't speak about it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned as well, obviously that happened once and it happened to you again when yeah. you're 15. Yeah. 
it was three more times before the age of 18 because there's many, many ways that a woman or a man can respond after they've been raped. And for me, I became very promiscuous because I was too scared to say no. I thought if I say no or fight back, if anybody tried it on, it would get violent like it did the first time. So I just allowed it. And then that created a name for myself. So it was this vicious cycle of unwanted attention, but I was too scared to say no. Um, but it was only really when I wrote my book when I was, you know, my early 50s that I realized that those other times were rape as well. I never consented. Mm. They wanted something from me and I said no and they just took it anyway. So there was never any any consent. But for years, I just thought it was bad sex. I just put it down to just, the, you know, what I was going through at that time. I'd never realized that it had been rape until I was in my 50s. So I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that will realize as well that we diminish what happens to us, that we undermine mm. it and, you know, we just put it out there and don't look at it. But if there's not clear uh, consent, then it is rape, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned, obviously, when you're put into a psyche home at a time when you were young, they kind of thought there was something else wrong with you. Like, they just thought you had all this condition. Yeah, when I wrote my book, I asked for my notes to read because somebody suggested that and it, it wasn't easy to read my notes but I just wanted to see if they had any idea you know I was a, a normal 13 year old girl and I literally turned into one overnight who couldn't sleep couldn't eat hated herself but they just put me down as a troubled adolescent with an eating disorder so they had no idea that I'd been through a major trauma mm. and you, you mentioned as well that to tell your parents you wrote a note mm-hmm and left in your room in the hope that, like, that was your way of speaking out. Mm-hmm. And when you came back, the reaction was quite different from your father and your mum. Well, my dad was insistent on going to the police. They, they called the other girl involved, and she said it didn't happen like I said it had, which I felt very betrayed by, but I think she maybe was scared of getting us into trouble. And my mum was really quiet, and it took me years and years to understand her silence and I didn't know at the time. I thought she didn't believe me. But even mm. many, many years later, after my father had passed away, my parents were married for nearly 40 years. They had five kids. She disclosed to me that she had been um, sexually abused by one of her neighbours. Every time my granny would send her to play with her friend a few doors along, her dad would rape my mum. So in that moment, when I'm sharing my story, my mum is just silenced by her trauma because my dad had no idea. So she in her mind, thought I would have to go through what she went through to be examined, to go through the courts, to speak to specialists, you know, lawyers. It was three years later. I doubt I would have had to have done all of that. But she was terrified of the idea of me going to the police. My dad wanted me to go to the police. So <laughs> yeah. It was a hard time for me as well. Yeah. I know for you, like, your, your behaviour changed and you, you turned to drugs and alcohol because you just didn't want to feel the... Mm-hmm. the guilt and the shame when the rape happened to you again three other times was the feeling just getting worse or was it just it couldn't get any worse than what it was already yeah I just thought this is all I'm good for you know I just had no feelings of self-worth no self-care no self-confidence and I thought this this is it this is all I'm good for um so yeah it wasn't it wasn't a good time at all no and then you met your husband Stephen I did, yes. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I was reading it and I saw a chapter said Stephen and in it, Amelia thought, oh, it's not happening again. <laughs> that, that that was my reaction because it was like, poor woman. And how, how was that? Like that, 
you mentioned that he liked you, but you just couldn't understand why he liked you. Yeah, I was very confused because of the image, the distorted image I had of myself. And I would drive him potty, saying, but how can you love someone like me? You know, I just thought I was broken, damaged goods, worthless, contaminated, all of the feelings. But he just always just was very steady, just always has always supported me, given me unconditional love. And really through his love, I started to understand I was lovable, that I could, you know, take love in, I could receive it, and I could also learn to give love out. And I could learn to love myself, which is something I didn't do. I hated myself uh, for years. Mm. So, yeah, really, love is always going to win over hate, always. Yeah, he always finds a way to rise to the top. And how was the experience of telling him? I think you mentioned that you told him in, in the dark because he just couldn't. Yeah, it came many, many, many years later. He always knew what had happened, but didn't know the details. And when okay. my, my eldest daughter was 13, all of my memories, the trauma, everything resurfaced, which is always going to do. We always think we can run from it, but we actually, we can't. It comes back when you're ready to face it, whether you believe that or not. And I went for, back to therapy because I had all these memories. And at the end of the, about three years, my therapist suggested I should really let him know why I've been coming for so long, you know, tell him what happened. So I still had a lot of shame and I couldn't face him face to face because I thought, you know, it might change something between us. He might not like mm. me anymore. He might be put off me, whatever. But I really went to bed one night and I said, yeah, I would really like to tell you what happened. He said, fine. So I lay in the bed in the dark holding his hands and I told him what happened and he was fine. Obviously, we're still we're still together all these years. Later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but geez, I, I can't imagine what it, what's like. Yeah. And when you started seeing a therapist first, what was? Do you think like after a couple of sessions you should be okay? No. Well, I've seen many therapists. So, which time are you talking about? You mean the the last time when my daughter was thirteen? The, the very first time when you decided to see a therapist. It took me a while to find the right one, you know, because yeah. I've sat in both chairs as a client and a therapist. But as a client, I could look into a therapist's eyes, even if I didn't know them. Like you just get a sense, yeah, yes, I can work with you. No, you can't hear what I have to say. So it took me a few people to get the right one. Um, I think trauma kind of, for me anyway, is very layered. So I would do a chunk of work for a time then I mm. think I'd be okay and then I would get re-triggered or the trauma would rise to the surface again and then I'd do a bit of work and then I think I'm okay and then again I'd go and, you know, have some more therapy. So it's very layered. It's like it's like a big onion. And I think the mm. hardest layer of the onion is the outer layer. But once we start peeling it back, we eventually can get to the core. So, But it takes a while. It's not, it's not easy. No, because you, you tried a couple of things. You got very active and you're running and your your mind was in the right space and you thought maybe I'm okay now but you were triggered again which which kind of it was like a yeah yeah I realized that when I was yeah when I was running I was really running on empty I thought I was really grounding myself because on that night as you know I left my body so I was always trying to do things that helped me land back into my body and I realized I could run forever which was great yeah. for my marathons but I wasn't present in my body so I wanted to do things that landed me back in so I could ground myself so once I saw running wasn't a healthy option for me and it might be mm. brilliant for other people but for me it helped me to run physically but it helped me to run emotionally I was running further from my from my trauma rather than running towards it I 
hang up my running boots. I never, <laughs> never really run again, just occasionally do sprints, but that's about it. So then, as you know, I turned to windsurfing. I went to karate at age 41. I'm a weightlifter. I do yoga. I walk my dog yeah. running. <laughs> so all things to center me and to ground me and to get me just connected in. Even when you're doing karate and stuff like that, you, you still had a fear of men being anyway near you. Yeah. Yeah, I got to a point in my life where I saw I had so many fears still, so many phobias, even though I thought I had healed. And I decided to challenge my fears because I realized that, you know, fear can stand for a few things. False evidence appearing real, which is what I did for years, or face everything and rise. And I thought, you know, I've done the last one for years. I, I need to face these fears. And I realized that fears are all part of our imagination. Everything I was scared of, it already happened to me, or everything I was worried about, that was in the future. How did I know if that was going to happen? But if I found a way to stay in the here and now, I was okay. And I think we get caught by imagination or our past history. So I wanted to challenge my fears. So I put myself, myself into situations that would normally scare me, things I would normally avoid. And going to karate, as you said, I was scared of men and being out of control. Those are my main fears. So putting me into a predominantly male environment where we fight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was that was a, a scary moment. But, you know, it's, it's been the best thing I've ever done. I still go now. I'm 56 now. I don't know if I'm much better. But it's, I've seen in that class that I have really seen the worst of men, but the best of men too. Mm. So even when you started doing counselling, you didn't even... You didn't want to see male clients at the start. Yeah, I was terrified sitting in a room alone opposite a man. I thought he was going to attack me. That was my main fears. Mm. But I'd always worked for women's organizations. You know, I worked at Women's Aid. I worked at Rape Crisis. And then I saw this fear and I thought, well, what kind of therapist am I going to be if I can't work with a male? That's crazy. I can't just work with women. So I, when I was challenging myself, I asked my receptionist who looked after the diary, just give me male clients male couples, single males, whatever. And I only work with men so that I kind of uh, desensitize myself. You know, I got used to working with men and it became a lot easier. I saw that men just think and feel the same as women when they're stressed anyway. Yeah. They're not there to attack me in the room at all. So, uh, yeah, they're one or two dodgy ones, but that's going to be wherever yeah. you go, I guess. Yeah, you can't <laughs> escape those, unfortunately. And then... Uh, yeah. When you're doing different type of healing process, you mentioned you were hypnotized a couple of times. I was, yeah. My mum yeah. had used hypnosis when I was growing up. She's had a lot of pain from a car accident. She'd broken her neck. And I saw that it helped her, and I saw that it helped her mind. And when I decided to give birth or to get pregnant to start with, I was terrified of giving birth. And I went to see a hypnotherapist who also did psychotherapy. And it really helped to calm my mind down and to be able to be in a grounded enough place to give birth. I've had three girls, so obviously I got over that phobia. But when mm. my memories returned later on, I thought, I don't know if I can trust the hypnosis because um, maybe they planted all these false memories. Maybe it wasn't, I didn't really go through the trauma. Um, so it helped for some things, but my mind it just wasn't satisfied. It wanted My mind wanted to find ways to not accept the truth, I think, though. It wasn't the hypnosis. It was just my mind caught in denying and not wanting to believe or accept at all. Mm. But that, that's also a form of protection, isn't it? Yeah. It, it can be. So I needed that protection for many years. But when my mind was ready to face it, it actually was an obstacle because I didn't need to deny it anymore. And I saw 
that in the three years of therapy that I had uh, regarding the rape, the last time I could drive myself mad. This denying the memories were actually getting, it was almost worse than the pictures that were being revealed to me because I just thought, I can, I'm going to drive myself mad if I don't soon accept what happened to me. Um, so yeah, the denying denial is really strong. It's very hard to wake up to things that we don't want to wake up to. Mm. Yeah, because what I was sensing was when you were getting the images, the flashbacks, mm-hmm. your mind would kind of talk it down to just... Yeah, oh, that wasn't that as bad. As in like, that didn't happen. No, if it was that bad, I would remember it, you know, but it's clearly because it was that bad, that's why I didn't remember it. Mm. And you also, you mentioned that you you found a monk. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, not a monk, a guru. Ima- Imaho? Oh, Imaho, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he is not a monk. He is, shaman. I guess you'd call him a, a shaman. When I was at, yeah, when I was at college, um, I'd heard people mention his name and I was always a bit intrigued. And so I went along to one of his workshops and I was a little bit terrified, to be honest, to start with. But something in me just felt like I was home. And something in me just said, you, you need to come to these workshops. And I've been going now. I would say about 15, 16 years. And actually, I used to spend a lot of time in Cork and Ireland visiting there because he used to tour Europe twice a year in the spring and in the winter, autumn time. And I guess you just call him a teacher of life. He teaches us how to come from our heart, how to operate from a, a more heartfelt way. And he really encouraged me to write my story down. If I hadn't written my story down for him, which took me 12 years to write four pages oh. I'd have never written my book. I'd have never spoken up publicly. I'd never become a sexual violence activist. I'd never have done my TED talk, all of it. I'd never have done any of it because I was so still caught up by my shame and my fear of what people would think and how they would judge me that I was terrified to let people know about my past. I gave this image that I was healed and I was okay, but mm. I know it was just it was just a facade. It was just a mask I wore a lot of the time. So yeah, he's been hugely influential influential part of my life yeah that's very good you mentioned the very first time you went to his the seminar and you kind of you're a bit skeptical of like what is going on what are these people doing yeah. <laughs> what am i doing here absolutely yeah. it terrified me a bit <laughs> <laughs> but he kind of i think when he met you like he kind of saw that there was a lot of layers behind you yeah yeah uh, and yes yeah. it's it's very hard to explain when you haven't been there, but it just felt like this is the place I'm meant to be, and it just clicked. You know, I, when I wrote my book, it's not really a self-help guide. I can't imagine everybody will want to take the approaches that I've taken, because <laughs> I've taken some which some people might say are a little bit, you know, not conventional. But um, there's a mm. path for everyone, and they will find their healing journey, and it's just to show them that there's it, it's multi-layered, there's many, many ways to the same path of healing and it is a journey you know I tried many many different types of therapies whether that's talking therapy Mm. body therapy you know experiences and I don't think one has helped more than the other I think collectively they've all had their place for me because I think when you're talking about healing especially something like you experience Mm -hmm. you have to try a lot of things yeah because for a long time my head and my body were disconnected you know, and I wanted to line them up. I knew that my body, I didn't feel like I was home for years. I felt like I was a house that had no furniture and I was just this empty space, renting an empty property. So I wanted to find a way to line it all up, you know, to be grounded and to be back home in my body. Mm. 
And how were you feeling after you wrote the book and you know that it was going to be published? A bit mixed, a little bit excited and a lot of bit scary <laughs> still because of the shame. But, you know, shame can't exist when we expose it. So by exposing it, I'm also helping to shatter it. You know, I went, but that's really what I call by standing in my shame. I'm standing in my shame every time I speak out, every time I, I write, every time I blog, every time I, I'm invited to talk somewhere. I'm standing in my shame and it can't exist. So even though I was terrified, again, what will people think? Will they still want to know me? Blah, blah, blah. Because not many of my friends knew. And the ones that did know, they didn't know the details. So it was a big mm. shock for a lot of people. Um, but then I saw within moments the power that comes when we share our stories. You know, I, I first shared it my story with the Forgiveness Project before mm. I wrote the book. And uh, Marina, who's our founder, calls us story healers rather than storytellers. And I have felt the healing power that comes from sharing my story so many times. And at the moment, while we're recording this, I don't know when it goes out, but it's, it's um, sexual violence and sexual assault awareness week. And the hashtag is called It's Not Okay. And just by sharing that simple hashtag, it's not okay, or hashtag me too, it gives other people the permission to share their story. So we've become mirrors, I suppose, for other people. Well, if she can speak out, then mm. I can speak out. Or if he can, then I can. And that's really what happened to me. I'm yeah. just standing on the shoulders of many people that have written their stories or spoken their truth and stood in their truth and shared it. And I've already seen so many times that people have said, oh, I'm only sharing my story because of you. Well, I'm only sharing my story because of someone else. And now someone will share their story because of that person. So it's mm. a massive ripple effect. So now it's almost as if the story doesn't belong to me anymore because my story is just a story of many, many people. It's not an uncommon story, sadly, at all. Because mm. you, you mentioned when you, when you shared the first online, there was huge response back mm. from from people like that have been in a situation mm. uh, similar to yours and just couldn't speak because of the the shame that came with it yeah. and, uh, and the guilt and the fear and the judgment and and all of it yes so many people got in contact within the first few weeks i'd lost count how many people said actually this happened to me as well or some i had a couple of friends who told me that they had never told anyone and they told me for the first time. One woman I knew was in her 60s and I was the first person she told and she had been a little girl. So it's very powerful giving other people the permission to share their story. Mm. Yeah, because, yeah, I think you're more, I know it's a traumatic event, but you're more focused on what would people think rather than what effect it might have on people. Yeah, now, I'm, and now, now. I have no shame at all because I know... I know the shame was never mine. The shame always belonged to them, but I took it on board. You know, I, I ingested their shame in some way. And um, the shame never belongs to anyone. It's never the victim's fault. It's not to do with anything that I was wearing, anything that I was drinking. A hundred percent of all rapes are caused by rapists and nothing else. But it's, it's a very intimate crime. You know, if our car was stolen or our house broken into or there was a fire we wouldn't have the same shame. So why do we have this shame connected to sexual violence? It was a, a crime committed against my body. Mm. So I should not have any shame, and I don't anymore. It took a while to get to that place, but I don't anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It does take... And when you hear people now, like, 
online you hear story come out like do you get any reaction from it do you just like do you get it doesn't trigger anything like that does it I don't get triggered, but I still get angry. This mm. is still going on in 2022, you know. Uh, why aren't women safe? Why aren't, aren't women safe in their own home? You know, why is there so much rape culture and victim blaming and misogyny within the very places where we should feel safe? The police institution for a start, you know. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. There's a, the, the courts, how the courts let so many victims down, how in Scotland... Only a few percent of all cases that make it to court will end in prosecution. Two or three percent, that's rubbish. It's like we've decriminalised rape and sexual violence. Why would you ever want to go through that system to report it when you know that chances are they won't be charged? So it's very stressful time to put yourself through a court case. And you're, you're the witness in the court case. It's not even your court case. So mm. there's a lot of changes, a lot of things that do make me very angry. But... Every time somebody speaks out, male or female, it gives permission for someone else to find their voice. And, and that's what I do. I just really speak out to end the shame, the stigma, the silence, and to help people find their courage and their voice so they can share their own story too. Because I think when we don't speak out, we really hold ourselves back from living our, our best life. Mm. And do you think as a public, we focus more on, you see it sometimes with hashtags like the girls walking home or... She was going out for a run. We should... Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter what they yeah. were doing. It doesn't matter if she was going to buy drugs. It doesn't matter if she was a sex worker. It doesn't matter if she was a granny, if she was a single mum. She was going down to buy some alcohol. It doesn't matter. You know, it's nothing to do with, oh, does that make her a good victim, a nice victim? All women should be safe regardless of what they're doing. Mm. I don't really like that hashtag, to be honest. She <laughs> yeah. was only out for a yeah. run. It does That makes me angry as well. Yeah, you see that, you kind of think, that's getting away from the conversation of what happened to that woman. Yeah, you know, because unfortunately with Sarah Everard, she was only walking home. She was a white, blonde, well-dressed, you know, middle-class woman. It, it makes her like a perfect victim. What happens to someone that comes from the 50th floor in a council rise, black woman that's working the streets? Are we going to judge her if the same thing happens? You know, it's... It's a very, I think it's a wrong message to give mm. out because we're also, it's a form of victim blaming as well. We should be focusing on not um, preventing, you know, more Sarah Everards. We should be focusing on preventing less Wayne Cousins. <laughs> he, were, he was a policeman. They're telling women that we should, you know, if we're approached by a lone policeman that we shouldn't go with them. Well, if you're approached by a policeman, how do you know he's not a policeman? Yeah. Um, we should flag down a bus. We should knock on someone's door. If my door goes at 11 o'clock at night, I'm not opening my door. There's no chance. I've never known a bus if I flagged it down at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Are they going to stop for mm. me? So again, we're putting all the focus and all the attention and all the pressure onto women to keep themselves safe. And it's not about street lighting. It's not about... Any safety measure will make any difference because we know that women are raped in their home as well. Babies are raped. Boys are raped. It's changing this culture that we have. Yeah, yeah. You see that. I see it sometime when event happens to a woman and they're like, oh, women should take up classes or carry these with them. You're kind of like, well, you're almost excusing the behavior. Of what the yeah, well, it's not almost, it is. And then yeah. what happens if you hadn't taken a class or you didn't carry this weapon? Well, you know, what did you expect? You didn't, you didn't do whatever mm. that class. You didn't do your self-defense classes or you weren't wearing your chastity knickers. So it's your fault. But no, it's never the woman's fault. What I love about Ireland actually is they've had some horrific cases where 
the men were found not guilty. One particular young woman was wearing lacy thongs and the judge said, well, what did you expect? You were wearing lacy underwear. Well, if they've got down to your underwear, they, they shouldn't be there. And the demonstrations that took place, all the women took to the streets and men as well, and they're waving their thongs in the air saying, you know, this is not an invitation to rape me. My underwear does not cause rape. Men cause rape. You know, rapists cause rape. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're great at demonstrating, but sadly mm. the Irish courts let victims down as well. Oh, it's, it's shocking. You know, you kind of mm. like... And that sends out the message that it's okay. Like if, yeah. if people yeah, it's decriminalized. are if people are walking to court and walking back out, you know, there's, there's no punishment for this kind of behavior. No. Do you think uh, a lot needs to be done with education? Yeah, I used to think it was just education. I used to think, you know, we need to start um, at a young age and talk about respect and consent, you know, what a healthy relationship looks like. But it's not just that. That's just a small part of it. We need to change our culture. We need to look at how we treat women in society. We need to look at the media, the music, you know, uh, the films, how we demonize women, girls. Um, so many changes. We've just spoken about the court mm. system, the not so justice system. So many changes. If we had a, a greater sentencing, maybe it would put people off. I don't know. Again, I don't really have the answers, but it's, it's going to take yeah. a huge cultural shift to stop violence against women. Yeah, no, there's. So many things needs to be done. It's not just, it's not just like let's educate the boys and that would be it. You know, yeah. when it, and it's educating girls yeah. is you know what girls will say. Actually, no, that's not consent. No, you know, it's, it's both sides. It's it's not just boys. It's um, teaching girls what's acceptable and what's mm. not acceptable as well. Yeah, I don't think they even teach consent in school. I, well, I don't know. My kids are all grown up, but I, I don't remember them. I always spoke to them about it, but I've. I don't remember much about what they they really learnt in the sex education classes. It wasn't it wasn't great. No, no, it wasn't. And uh, you came to forgive your abusers. Yeah. How, how was that? How did you get to that point? Because it wasn't it wasn't really intentional. Um, my therapist just said to me one day, you know, maybe they weren't born rapists. And I just thought, what a stupid thing to say. I was just so angry with him that he could say something so ridiculous. But he planted a thought, I guess, in my mind. And it started to work on me. And I wanted to really, I guess, understand how could two guys who weren't really much older than me, they were maybe like 17, 18, how did they know to be so horrifically violent towards another human being, one that they could dehumanize and degrade? How, how, where did that come from? Mm. And I had a manager when I worked as a therapist in the counseling center who used to be a midwife, and she told me something which I never forgot. She said that she had delivered thousands of babies and she never once met an evil one. And, you know, I just thought, I think we are all born a blank slate. I think you and I, all of us, we come in as innocent babies and somehow we just get corrupted. We get conditioned by our experiences, by our life, by our surroundings, everything, our schooling, our friends, everything has an influence on us. And mm. somehow I just thought, what's happened to them? What have they seen? What have they heard? What have they experienced? And I don't know where it came from. I felt compassion in my heart. And then I, I thought to myself, I can take this one step further to really to make peace. You know, I didn't 
I didn't need to speak to them. I didn't need to write them a letter or, you know, whatever. I could make this decision in my heart. But I saw that forgiveness for me was about understanding and it was about letting go. It was about accepting. And I really had to start with myself. I had to forgive myself for just being a naive 13-year-old girl who went on the night that just went really wrong. It was just a really, really bad night out. Mm. It was nothing to do with me. And I just saw that holding on to all the anger and the hate and the revenge, which I did for years, I was a very, very bitter, angry person. That didn't serve me. It, it you know, gave me a disservice. It just made me, yeah, every step I took in life was filled with rage, fear and hate and anger were my friends. And we walked around for too long and I just thought, if I can accept and forgive, it, it just cuts all the ties with them. It stops all the links to them. And it was like my key to freedom. It really just let me go. And it was an act, I guess, of self-love, of um, self-compassion. But it really, yeah, it set me free completely. Yeah. Let's not forget, like, forgiveness is not excusing the behavior. It's more, no. <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> and I'm not really, you have to be clear, I'm not a forgiveness preacher. I don't tell people, look, the only way you'll ever heal is you have mm. to forgive the men or who the women that abused or raped you. That's not what I'm about. This this is how I chose to do it. You know, this was my path. There'll be many paths, as I've said. And I'll never, ever, ever forgive the act of rape because it was a total violation on my mind and my body and my psyche. And that lasted for decades. So... Yeah, I just like to be yeah, clear about yeah. those things. And for anyone that's kind of experienced this and are still in silence, mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give them? I just say, you know, it's never too late to find your voice and get support, whatever age you were. If anything that I've said has resonated with you, you know, find someone. If you can find a therapist, a good therapist, speak to them. If you can find a friend, be careful who you find. Make sure it's someone that you trust mm. and someone that will listen and believe you because to be listened and to be heard and to be believed there's nothing more powerful and if you can't find someone then write your story down stop denying your story and, and read it to yourself over and over but yeah get support it's, it's never too late never yeah it is i can't i can't even imagine what it's like you mentioned that you're diagnosed diagnosed with ptsd mm -hmm. do you still have that do you still suffer from that or is that no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say at all. It's interesting, actually, it was when I was training to be a volunteer at my local rape crisis, we did a session on um, PTSD and disassociation, and I went, oh, I've had that, 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 <laughs> oh, everything on that list. The only thing I didn't do, because I was terrified of knives, because they used a knife on me, I didn't self-harm. So it was like one out of ten yeah. things I didn't do. And, and then it made sense. I, I realised why I was hypervigilant, I was paranoid about my security. Everything made me jump. Everything made me cry. Everything made me nervous. I had to do risk assessments wherever I went. I wouldn't get in a taxi, anything that triggered me. But I, I wasn't even aware. Mm. So your body goes into this ultra-protective state without really understanding why you do some of the things you do. But once I saw it, like I started to challenge my fears, and I saw it was just a, it's just a trauma response that's all it is. And I learned to work through a lot of the responses that I was getting. And if anything, now I'd say I have post-traumatic growth. I think we can grow through what we go through. And if anything, now I guess I'm stronger for what has happened to me. Not that I recommend that mm. happening to anyone else. But yeah, we are all 
so much stronger than we think we are. We, I'm not superhuman. You know, what I've done, the resilience that I've found, it's inside all of us. We can, with the right help, mm. the right support, you can, you can heal from anything. I do believe that. Yeah. And for anyone that kind of feels what the way it's portrayed sometimes is like, well, to women is as if you invited the, the assault. Mm-hmm. So, and for someone that's kind of still has that belief because you see it like, oh, the girl was doing this, the girl was doing that. For someone that kind of still living with that guilt, uh, what, what do you say to them? I would say what I said before, it was never your fault. And 100% of all rapes are caused by rapists, nothing else. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, we need to change the message that we give out to people, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, big time. Are you still doing a lot of windsurfing? Well, I live in Scotland, so and I haven't been travelling oh, no. for a while. <laughs> so yeah, not on my wetsuit. It's too cold. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not in Scotland. Are you still involved with a forgiveness project? Well, and sadly, because of lockdown, it's some of the projects I haven't been involved with. So just before, a couple of years before lockdown, I started going to prisons. I've been to Peterborough Prison on the women's side, and we helped facilitate their project, which is called Restore. And it's about storytelling mm. and personal development and healing by sharing our stories and listening to the women share their stories. And it is some of the most powerful, intense few days I've ever experienced. It was exhausting, but it was just amazing work. I love doing it. So I'm hoping I can get back to do that again. Mm. And do you get male victims as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how's your experience with Trevor McDonough? Ah, yeah, he was great. He was just as you imagine him. He was very, very charming. And when we arrived at the studio in the BBC, someone said, you know, who is interviewing who? Thinking I could maybe be interviewing him. He mm. said, oh, no, no, no. I have the pleasure of interviewing Madeleine. And I thought, oh, I'll never forget that. He was very charming. He was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, after that interview, obviously, that brought more attention to your story and there was a lot more it was more positive yeah. than negative if anything absolutely yeah no he's he sent me lovely messages from people that had been listening and how it had impacted on them and my friend uh, her mum had been listening to the show and to cut a long story short she basically told her about her own experience and she had never ever spoken about it she was 81 at the time and she ended oh. 64 years of silence when she shared with her daughter what had happened to her so that interview to me is special for many, many reasons, not just because I met the fantastic legend Sir Trevor MacDonald, but also because of what took place with my, my friend and her mum. I think it is it just is all the evidence I need to carry on speaking out. You know, she really showed me the power of sharing our stories and what it can do for other people. Mm. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I don't have any more questions. I don't have any more questions, but I really appreciate it. You're welcome, James. If you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it. If you could leave a quick review on my Facebook page, Don't Be Afraid to Talk, or DM me on Instagram. The show notes will include all the relevant links from today's episode. If you haven't already, please download, leave a rating, and share with your friends you might just reach the person who needs to hear this message. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. I am James Lumumba, signing off with gratitude.